and said, uh, uh, let's, let's look at Romans chapter 14, continuing our study through Romans. Beginning in verse 13, it says, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to focus our attention on your word. God, we pray that as we consider how to navigate disagreement for the sake of unity, Lord, that you would give us wise insight from your word on how we can live our lives and, and preserve and encourage your work among this church and fellow brothers and sisters in Christ around the world. Lord, that we would see the beauty of unity and strive for it, that we would protect it from secondary things that would undermine our confidence and focus on the mission of the gospel and proclaiming your kingdom. Lord, we look to you for guidance and we submit our hearts to what we hear. In Jesus' name, amen. I've been watching a lot of baseball the past few weeks. I don't know if you have, but I don't often watch baseball. But because the Philadelphia Phillies have made their way through the playoffs and into the World Series, uh, I've been watching a lot of baseball. And one of the things that gets discussed a lot in baseball currently is something called the shift. Does anyone know what the shift is? We got any baseball fans in the house? All right, a few baseball fans. You see, generally speaking, in baseball, when a player is batting, the defense in the field positions their players spread out in a balanced way all over the field and, and does so to prepare for the batter to hit the ball any particular place that they might hit the field. And so they just balance themselves, spread themselves out over the field into different positions. But with the advent of computers and advanced statistics, it's become clear that certain players and certain batters are so statistically and significantly more likely to hit to either the left side of the field 
or to the right side of the field, that defenses have responded to that by taking most of the players that would be on the left side for some batters and pushing them all the way over to the right to fill up the right side so that it's much more difficult for a hitter that regularly hits to the right side to get a base hit. Now that way may be way too technical for you on a Sunday morning. But they load up one side and shift their attention to where the ball is most likely to go. Now in, the ma in Major League Baseball, this is the last year that the shift is going to be allowed. Because many people think that it, that it sort of undermines the classic joy of the game. Um, that's for you to debate and disagree on, as long as you don't make a brother stumble about it. As this passage says, I'm not going to argue with you. But the shift in attention is to protect from the specific nature of one player's talent. Some batters pose a particular threat and require a shift in focus to defend them. Well, in Romans 14, in our passage today, the Apostle Paul sees the disagreement over what could be called secondary issues as a particular kind of threat to the church that requires a shift of focus to protect the church against potential damage from the enemy. He sees these secondary matters, not matters about what we believe about the nature of Jesus Christ, what the kingdom of God is, what the nature of God's word is, what God will do ultimately in the end to save us, how we can be saved and forgiven of our sins, matters about the deity of Christ, not these particular central things to our faith about what it means to be Christian. But secondary matters about how we navigate wisely different situations in the world we live in, in the context in which we find ourselves, or strate strategically live our lives as Christians in the world around us. In these secondary matters, he says, the disagreements that are going on are such a danger that, that wise, mature Christians need to shift their strategy from getting one another to agree with one another to protecting the unity and the focus of the church on the gospel. If you're a member of Pillar Church, you've been through our membership course, and in that course we talk about closed-handed issues that, that we need to have a sense of agreement on to have unity in our mission, and we talk about open-handed issues, which we can hold, sometimes with a lot of passion, but, but recognize that we aren't going to all agree on them, and they're not as important as the central things that drive who we are as a Christian. You see, Paul is seeing in this church, and knows as a threat to any church, that disagreement on secondary matters can lead to a disunity that breaks up our ability to accomplish and live out Christ's mission altogether. This shift that I'm talking about can be seen in verse 13 that we read just a moment ago. It says, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. You see, the passing of judgment here represents judging one another for not agreeing with our different positions. And so this focus on getting to a place of agreement and judging the other one as particularly wrong or particularly dishonoring to God because of their decision about the uh, things uh, that are secondary, 
that, that this forcing of agreement is to be left behind on these matters. And now the attention is to be turned to something else. But rather, he says, decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Now, I'm going to explain that in a second. But really what he's shifting us to is he's saying that when we disagree about secondary issues, we need to shift the focus from judgment to careful protection of one another and the unity of the church. If we're not talking about clear doctrine related to the gospel or moral instruction explicitly outlined in Scripture, we shift our focus from judgment to protecting unity. Now let me say that as plainly as I can, and it should be up on the screen for you. Mature Christians shift their focus from judgment to protecting the unity of the church when faced with secondary issues of disagreement. That's what Paul is saying in this section of Romans. And Paul goes on to tell us why then it's necessary in verse 14. Continuing on in the passage from verse 13, he says in verse 14, it's necessary to do that because something that I think some of you may find surprising or maybe even confusing in this passage. Verse 14 says, I know, and this is Paul talking about the situation of eating meat offered to idols. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. Now that's confusing, right? That's a level of nuance that we often aren't comfortable with when it comes to our matters of disagreement. He says, on one hand, he believes and knows in the Lord Jesus. Now, what does he mean by that? The reason he says that is because in Mark chapter 7, Jesus was talking about foods, and he says, there are no fundamentally unclean foods. Now, you may be confused about that because you love a quarter pounder with cheese, and that seems fundamentally unclean. But it's not. It's not. That's a different kind of clean. But here he says there's nothing morally or spiritually wrong in and of itself with any food, all right? But here in this situation where they're dealing with the decision and the attachment of concern with food that have been offered to idols now being sold in the marketplace, he says that in a matter of conscience, when there are some people among them who actually feel like participation in that is also a participation in the idolatry, and they think it's unclean because of that, as long as they carry that conviction, it's actually to be treated as unclean for them. And it's a matter, and we're going to unpack that in a second. But as we read this verse, verse 14, we need to remember the particular problem that he's focusing on. What this particular problem is in the church at Rome that Paul is talking about helps give us a right understanding about how this passage in general can help us. So I said it already, in Rome there are Christians that have tender consciences about eating meat that has been offered up to idols in pagan temples. And it was regularly the case that this was such. And much of, the, much of that meat then was brought out into the marketplace and though it had been ceremonially offered to idols, it was then sold afterward to those who would want to buy it for food. And there were some people for whom the decision was simple. The idols are not gods. I'm a Christian and know better. It's just meat that God has provided. And I'm not attaching myself to the practice by eating it. That's reasonable from God's word to see it that way. But 
he also says there were others with a tender conscience who felt like they were supporting the system in larger ways or somehow condoning or contributing to the idolatry by eating the meat and would not eat the meat offered to idols. And since food is a major part of how Christians fellowship together, can I get an amen? Chili cook-off tonight, 4 p.m. Because food is a major part of how humans fellowship together, let alone Christians. It was affecting the church and infecting it with disagreements about matters of food. Paul, who understands the foundations of good moral decision-making, teaches them how to serve one another rather than telling either one of them that they are currently acting rightly in their perspective. Instead of judging who is right, he teaches them that we need to be sensitive to one another's consciences when making our decisions. And it, and it shows us something. Let me try to just make some clarity for you. Here's what he shows us. Two, two important things. Here's the idea. Some things are objectively wrong for all of us to do. Okay? We would call those objective moral requirements. The Bible makes that clear. For example, committing adultery is always a sin. It's not a matter of the person committing it. It's a matter of the act being committed. That's what objective moral requirements are. Bearing false witness in a real matter of importance is a sin. Cheating someone of what is due to them is always a sin. The wrong is inherent in the thing being done and not in the subject or the person doing them. There's all sorts of things that the scriptures show us very clearly are wrong. And be, those things we should submit ourselves and expect unity among the body and carrying them out. That's one category. But then he mentions a second category. Some things are subjectively wrong for us to do individually. There are some things in our lives that the person next to you this morning or worshiping in these pews, uh, that, that it would be okay for them to do it and it wouldn't be okay for you. Now that, that has to do with your context, your history, your dangers, your temptations, your situations, and your witness. This is the part where we see that we all live in some individual ways before God that we don't share. Now this category is more tricky. Some things are wrong because they would violate our or my or your current understanding of what God requires of us. You see, you're sitting there and you're thinking, you're the person thinking, I can't eat this food offered to idols. If I do that, I'm participating in this system and I feel like I'll be wronging God. Then don't eat it, he says. It would be wrong for you to override your conscience about how important it is to obey God to be able to just exercise the freedom that somebody else thinks you have. And so he says that is important that we that we honor this category. This is tricky, but Paul has, uh, has us in the middle of a good example here. Paul actually says here that eating the food is not an objective problem. But as long as the person feels conscience-bound to God in the matter, it would be wrong for them to ignore it. Wrong for you to ignore it. Wrong for me to ignore it for myself. So agreement, he says, is not the fundamental goal in these matters, but protecting one another from violating our consciences before God is the goal. Here's the logic. Here's why he says that. 
If you get them to, if you get someone, or if you and I violate our conscience in a matter that is less clear, we run the risk of making ourselves comfortable with violating our conscience before God in areas that are more clear. You see, it's about the underlying muscle for obeying God. The underlying muscle in us of listening to God, of obeying Him, is more important than us agreeing on all the matters in which we are to obey or disobey. Right? We don't have to agree on all those things, but we must agree that if we, are, that we should never violate something that we believe is wrong before God. That keeping a tender conscience towards God, always being willing to obey God in every matter that we have seen clearly or come to conviction on is more important than you and I agreeing on all the details. That's because first and foremost, each one of us individually lives in relation to God and God alone. It's a matter of worship. And this idea will be a shift for most of us because it means that we have to seek better understanding with one another in these matters of disagreement than just projecting our own situation and views onto everybody else. It's so critical. How can we ever help one another and maintain unity about central things if we aren't willing to enter and understand someone's situation, their current understanding of God's word, as they're working out their important decisions in life? And we can run right over the work God is doing to strengthen their conscience in obeying him if we're not careful. And so this is why he says that instead of agreement, we should shift. To never putting a stumbling block or hindrance in someone's life to building that muscle of obeying God. Now, theologians usually describe how we can deal with this in two ways. Some of us say, well, does that mean we always just stay unaware in our conscience of the freedoms that we have in Christ? No, what it means is we always tend to our conscience before God and we obey we obey our sense of what God has called us to do in every situation while also allowing God's word to instruct us and mature our conscience along the way about the meaning of the gospel. But you and I are doing that at different rates and different times of maturity, and therefore in a body, we have to be sensitive to that. We have to learn to help one another in that. And so the rest of this passage... From there on, that's the big idea. That's the main thing he's driving at. But the rest of the passage just seeks to apply that idea and even highlights it again in verse 23 when it says, whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not of faith. So how does the rest of the passage instruct the mature then among us to navigate and lead and help those who may be less mature in some of these areas of Christian freedom related to the gospel? And here's how it says to do it. I've got four things that I picked up in the passage that can guide us in that. And let me get to the first one. It says that we should prefer love over agreement. He says we should prefer love over agreement. Verse 15, for if your brother is grieved by what you eat... That means the way that you are gathering with one another, not just that he hears that somewhere else apart from them, you're, you know, you're eating something and they're so nosy about what you're up to. We're talking about the fact that we are creating the ability to experience welcome and fellowship and love and joy uh, among the body because we insist we've got to eat certain things at certain times, whether other people with tender consciences are there. He says if, if you're grieving someone, 
in that way, by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. You've thrown love out the window. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ has died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil, verse 16. So in verses 15 and 16, not being sensitive to the conscience of others is seen as a rejection of our calling to walk in love. This isn't love. That lack of sensitivity In the context, Paul is beginning to tell those who feel the genuine freedom of the gospel to stop pressing others to join them while they remain unpersuaded. The pressure to throw off their conscience and the centering of attention on this freedom to to eat whatever they want has resulted in grieving the heart of those who are sensitive in their conscience about the issue. And he says doing this is a failure to exercise love and care for the actual experience of their fellow believers. And it runs contrary to the gospel message. This is, and listen to what he says. This isn't tangential. This is about how you display the fact that you understand the gospel. Why is that? Notice he says, by what you eat, do not, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Now, why does he do that? Because he wants to bring us back together to focus us on our real identity and the things that are most important. Who are we? Are we people who just argue over food and over drink? Are we people that promote our rights, our freedoms? Is that where we focus? Or are we people who have been called into a relationship with God because Jesus set aside his freedom? That's what Paul's saying. This person that you're running over, that you're pressing their tender conscience to violate what they believe is important for them to do before God, this person belongs to the family of God just like you do because Jesus Christ, rather than exercising freedom, laid down his life and set his own aside. Christ died for them. We belong together because Christ sacrificed himself for us. Jesus restricted his freedom in going to the cross for them. And you will not even put a curb on when and where you eat this meat offered to idols to make sure you can be in peaceful fellowship with other Christians. The result is the freedom that Christ gives from endless concerns about meat, days, rituals, and surface things becomes an evil thing. (laughs) It's spoken of as evil. It's seen as evil. Sin always takes a good thing, which is freedom here, and twists it into a bad thing, which is a lack of love. And so here he says that we should prioritize love over agreement. The second thing he shows us is that we should prioritize peace over agreement. Let me show you what he means in detail. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. You feel the shift in different words there? It's not this, but this. (laughs) This thing that you thought was so important needs to be shifted over to focus on this other thing that is at the heart of the kingdom of God. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace 
and mutual upbuilding. So he says, rather than pursue agreement in this matter, these matters, you need to pursue what, what will bring peace and what will allow you to mutually, together, in agreement with one another, build one another up in the kingdom of God. This is what he's talking about. Now, verse 19 here really tells us what to pursue as our basis of unity. Let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Really here, Paul begins to remind us that what has happened in this experience of disagreement is that they have lost sight of what they have in common in the kingdom of God. One of the things that plagues Christians in our culture and time is losing sight of what we have in common in the kingdom of God. One of the reasons that uh, over the past many years, Christians have found, found it difficult to find agreement with one another. There's been tense times in churches. There's been division. And you know, it's amazing, most of that division hasn't been over the truths of the kingdom of God. It's been over other things. It's been over political strategies. It's been over personal medical decisions. It's sometimes over music. It's, it's over lots of things. And those are real and difficult decisions. Those are differences and disagreements. Some churches, it can be over choices about how to school our children. You know, th there's all sorts of things that divide Christians. And here what he's saying is, he, sa he says, it's not that these things are unimportant. But it's at the center of who we are as Christians is a larger, more important identity. One that can be easily missed as we get wrapped up in the, in the time and place that we're in, in the moment of battle that we face. And one, one of the things that I do whenever I think about a different culture, different, uh, difficult cultural issue that Christians in our context are facing is, is, is I just kind of pull that issue up out of there and say, you know, if I would have talked to a Christian 200 years ago about this, would they understand why it's such an issue? Or would they say, don't you have a whole lot more in common than that, though? Can't you work through this? Or if I take it up out of my specific cultural situation and I realize that I'm a part of a global church that doesn't face all the same things that I do at the same time, and I put it into God, a, a group of godly Christians in another country, uh, are they going to feel like that is the most important thing for us to agree on before we can serve together in the kingdom of God? Or is there something more central? You see, their arguments of food and drink have little to do with the real matters, he says, of the kingdom of God. And we're in danger at times. If we don't think well about these secondary things, we're in danger of doing that. We recenter something else as our demand and litmus test for fellowship with other believers. And we can't give them space to work out the decisions of their own consciences. So, so here's what we see. You see, the kingdom of God, in reality... And he focuses it, uh, on it here. The kingdom of God tells us that the most important righteousness that we have is the right standing that only comes with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Not our right side of agreement on these secondary issues. 
If we want righteousness, we have all the righteousness we need for eternity in Christ himself and Christ alone. Not even in our own perspective, not in our own performance, but when our life was filled with the unrighteousness that was like filthy rags, Jesus Christ died on the cross and he washed us with his blood. He washed us clean so that we could stand declared by faith righteous before God. And this is much bigger than any sense of right agreement and secondary approval. In matters more important than food or drink, we have all sinned against God and typically continue to sin against God in ways that we should be grieved by. We've been unrighteous, but Christ died for the ungodly and unrighteous so that we can be forgiven and welcomed into his kingdom by faith and not by works. He mentions righteousness, but he mentions peace in the kingdom of God. The most important peace in the book of Romans is, is that we have peace with God because while we were living like enemies of God in far more than what we ate or drank, Jesus died in our places to remove God's rightful wrath over our lives and our sin and invites us now to a treaty of peace with God. When, when we could not imagine ever not having to fear God's hostility towards our rebellion, we now are invited to peace. The most important joy, he mentions joy, the most important joy that we have is the joy of knowing that although for a little while we may suffer trials of various kinds, God is working out the plans for his kingdom to flourish and working all things together for our good. We can rejoice knowing that nothing can separate us from his loving purposes on our behalf. And as our king has the power to deliver his promised victory against every real enemy we have. Our stability comes from Christ and Christ alone. Our hope, our unity comes from Christ and Christ alone. These things are what the kingdom of God is made of. These things are the starting point for our mutual upbuilding and peace together, he says. Not food and drink, not the holidays we celebrate or don't celebrate, not the government we did or didn't vote for, not the shot we did or didn't take, not the worship bands we do or do not listen to, and not the type of schooling we do or do not use. These are not the, the, the basis for our unity, but Christ in his kingdom and Christ alone. And this is an invitation for us to learn to value and hear and understand then from this kind of mutual upbuilding unity and focus that we're going to find ourselves in many different places about some of the things I've already mentioned today. And we can enter and listen to how God is working in the consciences of one another rather than judge. You see, what it does is give us this freedom. It says, hey, in here we can be welcomed in Christ and, and we don't all have to agree. And in that place, I can give safety. I don't have to work out my own insecurities by forcing your agreement. I can just create a space where instead I understand. And we listen. And we learn. And we look at what God may be doing to help another person navigate their conscience before him as a matter of faith. And we help one another. But, but listen, where there is just rampant disagreement and a lack of safety to be able to say what we really believe <laughs> what we really do what we really think we have no chance to benefit from one another no chance to understand one another no chance to navigate well the sort of differences that tear other people apart you see the kingdom of god may cause us to make decisions about all sorts of things 
that take our freedoms and demote them and take God's glory and Jesus' kingdom and promote it. You know, there's all sorts of things God may call you. You know, we can think about these matters. There's all sorts of things that you could rightfully do, rightfully pursue, rightfully participate in, that at some point in your life, God may say, but for now, to pursue what I want and what I have for you, for the witness I want you to carry, you're going to have to walk this path. And you're going to look around, and you're going to say, well, what about that Christian over there? Why do they get to do what they want? And it's not about them. It's about God. They're not in the same context you are. Their witness isn't being displayed to the same people. And you never know what God is doing as you simply follow what he has called and required you to do as you, as you seek his kingdom first. That's all Paul's doing. He's just taking Jesus' instruction to seek first the kingdom of God and he's applying it to this situation of disagreement. And he's readying us to give up all sorts of our freedoms so that the kingdom could flourish. And he's applying it to this area of disagreement. We should prioritize peace over agreement. Third, we should protect God's work over agreement. He says, do not then, verse 20, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It's not good to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. So here in verse 20, Paul tells the church then how they live this out. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. After talking extensively about protecting one another individually, the reference to the work of God here that Paul is concerned about is their collective work together. The word destroy that he uses here, do not destroy the work of God, is the word apeluamai, and it has the same idea of dissolve or disunite. So actually what he's saying is, for the sake of food and drink, do not disunite what God has brought together. And what he means here is, the people, <laughs> this group of people from all these different backgrounds who, who can display the gospel in a unique way by loving one another despite their differences and show that they have a unity that is different. This group of people do not disunite them by, by centering on the wrong things. That's what he's saying. He's saying you risk destroying the powerful testimony of God that he is working in and through you. So after talking extensively about protecting one another, this is collective. You know, it begs the question, how can a Christian really destroy God's work? What is, in, in what ways or what sense is Paul concerned that they will destroy God's work? The answer is not an ultimate one. Ultimately, God is strong enough to overcome our weaknesses and our failures. But here, the answer is a practical one. It's a really practical one. The church at Rome was a work of God. The unity around the gospel had created a fellowship of Christians who had endured persecution. And they were called to love each other and continue to carry out his mission. And these arguments were destroying that work. <laughs> these arguments were destroying that work and this particular church and threatening the dissolution of their body into endless factions that would be less effective. And he says, you have a responsibility to focus yourself on the central things of God's kingdom and protect that. To protect God's work among you. In the same way, if we do not act in love as Paul 
has described here and focus on the central things of God's kingdom while giving one another support to act according to our consciences before God, we threaten to separate what God has brought together. Sure, the food is clean, but if you're creating a spiritually dangerous and discouraging environment for your brother or sister because you want to exercise your freedom, then you've lost the plot. We have a responsibility to limit our freedom and act in love towards those who may be weak as a way of preserving and leading with unity in the work of God. And so he prioritizes protecting God's work among us so that we stay focused on the things that matter most. Lastly, we see that we should proceed with faith over agreement. That faith becomes more important than agreement. So he shifts the term to faith. You notice how he's worked his way from Love, <laughs> yeah, and so then he goes to peace and mutual upbuilding. He moves to protecting God's work, and now he says, ultimately, this is how we really live out what it means to have a faith relationship personally with God. See, we recognize the personal nature of it. The faith that you have, he says, <laughs> the one that gives you those freedoms, keep it between yourself and God. <laughs> An amazing instruction. It's like something that, that we've had trouble grasping as a culture and as churches, as Christians. That it's okay for you to have some things that be before God, instructed by God's word, you've determined are okay. And you don't have to spread it to everyone. You don't have to convince everyone. You don't have to show it off. Our lives in a social media saturated world don't always have to be a display of every freedom that we've decided to indulge in. We can actually live our lives in a way as a personal relationship and response to God in some things where we disagree with one another as a way of not sort of throwing salt in the wounds of other people who find it difficult. That's an important thing for us to consider. Paul ends by helping us see that the ultimate thing we need is to trust God for ourselves and help others do the same. Here is the instruction to those who are mature if they would hear it. There are some things that you can just enjoy between you and God. Some decisions you can just make between you and God. And then you can, you can actually support another person who disagrees with you about that. You can help them remain faithful to God as they exercise their freedom, their decision-making, and their consciences. Everybody doesn't have to buy into your lifestyle decisions. The fact that you insist on that is a failure to recognize the wild beauty of God's individual relationships to people. You have faith to believe that God is unconcerned with you eating this meat offered to idols or whatever it is for you today. You don't have to advocate it, show it off. There are a lot of other situations people are in that may not allow them to understand it. It may be bad for them to follow you where you're going. It's a blessing to know and understand the gospel. It's a blessing to understand the teaching of scripture well enough to work through to an appropriate sense of Christian freedom and not live in constant fear of dishonoring God. That is a blessing so much that he says, blessed is the one with this mature perspective. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves, that understands 
what the scripture teaches and can live it out and be confident that this is from God. But he recognized that the reason he pronounces a blessing over that is that there are so many who are still learning God's word, understanding God's word, maturing in God's word, who don't share in that same blessing. And it's our responsibility to protect them, to be sensitive to them in the various situations because we might be them in a different category, in a different moment. And we preserve one another by caring for one another. There are many situations where the tender consciences of less developed minds and hearts in Christ are simply not ready for this. They'll be filled with doubts about what they can and can't do. And our first priority is to help them maintain a trust in the goodness and love of God. To help them find safety and security from unnecessary temptation and deepen their roots in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want no part in encouraging others to ignore what they believe to be God's instruction to come enjoy our freedom until they grasp it and believe it for themselves. Until they can act in accordance with faith preserving their sense of a clear relationship with God, a clear conscience before God, before they can trust this gospel in this situation so that they can act in accordance with faith rather than contrary to it in their own hearts. The patient instruction in the gospel is our real hope and what will help all of us journey toward the promised rest of Christ where our consciences are free. It's an amazing thing. That we can be invited to a relationship where we can have a free and clear conscience before God. Man, I, I don't know what you've done in your life, how you might have failed this week, the way in which a decision to disobey God, or now you recognize this disobedience to God or dishonors God is weighing on your heart. But see, the thing that we most get to enjoy together is the fact that because of the Lord Jesus Christ, his broken body and shed blood, that by faith today, you can be cleansed of that. You can be relieved of the guilt that you feel for that failure. That you can be relieved of your fear of being wrong again, of falling short. That you can learn and mature and grow and that God's grace covers you as you walk in him. And you can have a clean conscience before God only because of what Christ has done. And that's our only hope. That's our unity. That's the strong center of the kingdom of God is our invitation to that. And in a moment, we're going to enjoy a symbolic celebration of that. We're going to take the bread and the cup that says, that we commune not around our own rightness, not around our own decisions, but around Jesus' decision to put his life in the place of ours. And that is where we find our hope. And so today, I invite you, after I close this time in prayer and we transition to singing, I invite you, if you, by faith, believe that promise, to join us in taking the bread and the cup together. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love. We pray that as we rest in the unity given by the Spirit that points us to the promises of Christ and the kingdom of God, that you would bind us together, that you would protect this church from disunity, that you would call us to bold actions in the kingdom of God, and you would preserve our attention to pursue 
what you would have us pursue in advancing your kingdom from the disagreements that can often plague and hold us back. Lord, that we would have a tender heart towards one another. We'd be patient in understanding of one another. We would lean in to listening, to caring, to being sure that we don't put stumbling blocks in one another's way. That we could run the race that you've called us to with freedom and joy. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.